Good morning, everybody. Oh, it's good to be with all of you again. Um, whew, it's like weird. So last week I was gone, and then I came back for Sunday, and it was like I didn't have to preach because somebody else was going to preach. And I like begged uh, Sarah, who's our usual worship leader, like, please, like if I'm not preaching, like please let me play. And she was like, oh, it's all full. You don't get to play this week. And then she was like, but I have a great idea. Do it next week, and you can just do all the things at the same time. And I was like, that's not as fun. It's not nearly as fun. Anyways, um, I do want to start by thanking Paul McGrew, who filled in for me last Sunday after uh, my week at seminary. A brief update on that for those of you who are newer to Revolution or checking Revolution out. If you don't know um, my story, before I became the pastor here at Revolution in 2018, I was an English teacher, um, and my academic background is all in American literature. And if you just joined us when we moved here, uh, moved in here at the Classic Theater, you might not know all of that yet because I've been trying to show a lot more restraint when it comes to talking about transcendentalism or poetry in my sermons. So like I'm trying to like, I killed everybody during the pandemic with that. I just like completely overdid it. So I'm trying to rein that back in, but I'm not gonna be able to hold out forever. So when that comes, that's, that's why suddenly we're talking about poetry all the time. Nonetheless, when I accepted the position here at Revolution, one of the requirements was that I pursue a master's degree in ministry. And so in the spring of 2020, I began a program at Emanuel Christian Seminary in Johnson City, Tennessee. And in addition to like a steady stream of online classes that go along with that program, I also have to head down there for these like on-campus intensive weeks twice a year. And that's what I was up to two weeks ago when I was out of town. Um, but here's the thing, here's the good news. That was my last one. So I'm not totally done. I still have to write some big papers, but still by Thanksgiving, I'm gonna be all finished with that program. So I wanna start this morning by saying thank you first uh, to Paul for stepping in and filling in last Sunday so I wouldn't have to write a sermon in the middle of listening to lectures on Old Testament theology. Um, and also I wanna say that I'm grateful for all of you, like as a church, for supporting me um, and being patient with me these last two and a half years as I've been going through this program. So it's been a wonderful program to be in, and I hope that it bears fruit here at Revolution. So thank you. Um, ah, but Kenny, you say, you're stalling. You're supposed to be preaching about Mark. Yes, you're completely right. Um, so let's get to that. This week is the third installment in our five-week series on the second half of Mark's gospel. And the big question that we see behind this section of the book has to do with what kind of a king Jesus is going to be. That's been the central question in this part of the series. What kind of a king is Jesus going to be? If chapters 1 through 9 of Mark's gospel are focused primarily on whether or not Jesus is who he says he is, which is the question that dominates there, chapters 10 through 16 ask kind of, so what? You can make this real easy to keep in your notes. They're asking, so what? If Jesus really is this Messiah, then what does that actually mean? And not only what does that mean for Israel, who in the context of the Jesus narrative here is desperate to escape the persecution of Rome, but also what does it mean for Christians in the decades and the centuries to come after the Jesus story takes place and who are still waiting for God's kingdom to come? Like we said, this letter uh, this gospel emerges in the seventh century, or not in the seventh, in the in the in the first century, in the seventies, so sixties or seventies A.D., and it's being sent to Christians in Rome who are facing persecution. So this isn't just a Jesus story; it's also a Jesus story with a purpose. Like, what does any of this matter? So, 
What happens in Mark 12, which is where we are today? Well, the answer is a lot of stuff happens. The chapter begins with this lengthy parable, which we covered earlier in this year uh, in one of our interlude sermons about the parables. That parable, to remind you, is about the owner of a vineyard who entrusts his property to these laborers. And then when the harvest comes, the owner sends a servant to collect what was brought in from the harvest from the laborers. But, um, but the laborers beat the servant up so that they can keep um, the harvest for themselves. And then the the owner of the property sends another servant, and he gets beaten up too, and then he sends a third servant, and this one gets killed, and then the, the owner thinks, I'll send my son, believing that surely the laborers will honor his son, but the laborers see when the son comes an opportunity to not just steal the harvest, but to steal the entire vineyard, and so they murder the son, and they leave the owner despondent. Now, when Jesus tells this parable in Mark 12, the text says that the religious leaders that he's talking to, because he's come to Jerusalem, as we've talked about the last few weeks, and he's beginning to engage with the people there. And the text says that the religious leaders knew he was talking about them with that parable, that they were those abusive and then ultimately murderous laborers. But there's an extra wrinkle here because the readers of the gospel also know that not only are the religious leaders the laborers, but that Jesus is talking about himself, that he's the son who's going to be killed. Now, no one within the context of the gospel at this point knows that yet. They don't understand yet that Jesus is going to be betrayed. And so in chapter 12, what happens is those leaders that Jesus is criticizing begin to interrogate Jesus in order to try and erode his authority in front of the crowds. That's the context of chapter 12. And this happens in this like series of weird uh, interrogations, these series of weird questions that get asked of Jesus. The first group that asks a question are this group called the Herodians, who are uh, people in Jerusalem who are loyal to the Roman authorities. And these people come and they ask Jesus specifically about paying taxes. And Jesus solves their riddle. And that's great. And then this next group comes, the Sadducees, who are a group of religious leaders who hold only to the teachings of the Torah, and thus they deny the possibility of resurrection. And so they ask him this question that's kind of a disingenuous question about about who's married to whom in heaven, and Jesus solves their riddle, right? And then after that, the Pharisees, another group who do most of the scriptural teaching in the temple, they show up. And they asked Jesus to choose among the greatest of the commandments, what's the greatest commandment. And Jesus solves their riddle. And so we have this series of like Jesus solving people's riddles. And then at the end of the chapter, finally, Jesus asks a question, asks a riddle himself, a question about the relationship between the Messiah and King David. And he stumps all of, all of them and they can't solve it. And so in a nutshell, that's chapter 12. We have this parable, this series of Jesus being smart, and then Jesus being so smart that he stumps everybody else. So to put all that in our context, right, what kind of a king is King Jesus? Well, chapter 12 seems to say, well, he's a smart king. That's part of what's up. But do you remember earlier what I said about the question that's behind the back half of Mark's gospel? It's only two words, and I told you to remember it. Do you remember what it is? So what, exactly. So what? What does it matter that Jesus is smart? And that's where I want us to dig in this morning. If, if you read or if you read or you listen to most of the writing that exists about Mark 12, the commentaries and things like that, you'll find that it has, over the centuries, it has been very easy for readers of Mark's gospel to get sucked 
into Jesus's counterpunches in these questions. These moments where he hits back and he seems to stump people. It's some of the most clever work that goes on in the gospel. And it is fascinating to see just how Jesus is able to undermine the people who are here because they're trying to undermine him. But my concern this morning is that if we stop there, if we stop with just looking at chapter 12 as like Jesus fighting back, we risk building this image up of Jesus doing the one thing that he always has the ability to do but never chooses to do in the rest of Scripture, and that is punching down. He's punching down. Let me ask you, is anybody here surprised that Jesus can outsmart the Pharisees when they are reading Mark 12? Anybody shocked? No. Although the characters in the story don't know it yet, they don't know what's going to happen to Jesus. Remember, we do. And like I said, so do those readers in the 60s and 70s AD in Rome who are receiving the gospel. They know what's going to happen. Jesus is going to die, but then he's going to rise from the dead, which means that when we're reading, everyone who's reading this already knows that Jesus is a winner, that he's the champ. If we sit here this morning then and we fixate only on the outcomes of these stories where Jesus shames the elites, my concern is that we're just kind of patting ourselves on the back for picking the hero. We're separating us from them. And I think that that action is always bad. And I think it's always not only bad, but like an unchristian, a deeply unchristian idea. I also think that there's more here that can challenge us if we allow it to, at least as much as it exists to challenge Jesus's enemies in the story. Okay, we're all together. That was, whew, I'm talking fast. I like threw a bunch, of, a bunch at you right out of the gate. So we're gonna slow down a little bit. In this series, we talked a lot about intercalation. Sorry about that. That's a writing technique that we've discussed that Mark uses where he sandwiches something important in between to other parts of the story. He like interrupts the story to like slide a different story that's helpful in the middle of it, like a sandwich. I think what's happening in Mark 12 though is we have a different technique on display. I think what's happening in Mark 12 is we have a motif. Remember earlier when I said I was an English teacher and I was holding back? I totally planned this from the beginning. I'm betraying you. <laughs> A motif is a recurring image or a theme in a work that enables the development, or I shouldn't have said that. It's a recurring image that enables the development of a theme. And the motif in Mark 12 is this. It's an imperial coin, an imperial coin. The imperial coin shows up twice in the chapter explicitly. It shows up in verses 13 through 17, and then it shows up again in verses 41 through 44. And my argument this morning is that it's also subtly present, I think, as Jesus redefines it in the middle in verses 28 through 34. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at those three passages. And we're going to try and keep our eye on the coin. It's a little bit of a, that game where you slide the cups around. I don't know what that's called. But keep your eye on the coin. All right. Passage one. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? 
But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Okay, so what's happening here, right? Well, the leaders are trying to get Jesus to either A, come out as pro-taxes, which is not a great move, right? In front of all the people of Jerusalem. And specifically, these people in Jerusalem have been oppressed by Roman taxation. So you don't want to come out pro-tax there. Or they're trying to get him to, to be like openly defy Roman law by coming out against taxes. And that could be something that's grounds for his arrest. And so it's trapped. But what does Jesus do? Well, it's like we said, he solves the riddle here, and he solves it in this interesting way by separating out obedience to the Roman state from obedience to God. And even more, he implies that obedience to Rome is kind of like hardly consequential here. There's a, a kind of like a, like a let the baby have his bottle element to this thing about taxes. Like, what do you care what Rome wants? Just give, them, give it to them. So to the point about punching down. Jesus outsmarts these guys by separating these two things and solving their riddle. But how? What are the actual grounds of the argument that Jesus gives them? Now, now this, I think, is the, the beautiful thing because what does Jesus say is the reason that the coin belongs to Caesar? Why does the coin belong to Caesar? Well, it belongs to Caesar because it has Caesar's image on it, right? It has his picture. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give back to Caesar what has his picture on it already. But what does Jesus add to that reading? Well, he says that second part that we, we skip over sometimes, right? And also give back to God what is God's. So the question becomes, right? Like what has God's image on it? And the answer is that we do, right? We do. You, me, everybody. The scriptures insist on this You've probably heard sermons about this before, that we're all bearers of God's actual image. It's something that we pull from Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of your Bible, which says, so God created mankind in his own image, the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. So everybody, men, women, everybody, has God's image on them, which in the context of Mark 12 means that we're all God's coins. That's where we're headed. We're all God's coins. Now, Another, I think, pretty incredible thing here, whereas Caesar's image on the coins that the Jews and other people in the Roman Empire are forced to use and return to Caesar in the form of their taxes, they have to take Caesar's coins and then give them back to him in the form of taxes, God's image in that Genesis passage isn't limited to any subset of people whatsoever. Like Caesar's coins only matter in the realm of Caesar, which is expansive, but still just part of the earth. God's coins here, God's image is on everybody. And that would, of course, include Caesar, right? So, yes, Jesus wins a debate here by parsing out these two things, parsing out our allegiance to Rome and our allegiance to God or our allegiance to Yahweh. But in his reply, he also does this other move where he's placing the Roman authorities like under God's authority, right? And not only under God's authority, but in a place of actual blessing and selection. Because it's a gift to bear God's 
image, not a tax to do so. So if we're just looking for Jesus to score a point here, he does, he scores several. But what I would contend that is, is much more significant here is that he is articulating a vision of a kingdom and an authority that first extends over and above earthly kingdoms, including Caesar, and second, a kingdom that's a blessing rather than a burden to belong to, a gift rather than a tax. Which gets us, I think, to these two important considerations that I think are gonna occupy the middle part of our like three story set here. And those considerations are, if we are types of coins which bear God's image, what do we owe him and what value does he give us? What do we owe him and what value does he give us? And I would contend that Jesus answers that question in the middle when he says this, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Remember the the shell game, right? Ah, where did that coin go? Where did the coin go? Well, I think if we take from the previous passage that we're the coins, here's what we can see in this section. First, we see what we owe God as bearers of his image? And the answer is we owe him our full selves. That's what that list means, right? We love him, which is to say that we treat him in right accord with his value, which if you're looking for like a little side note here, like a thing to write down about how I would write, how I would define love, this isn't good for my anniversary cards, but the way that I would define love is to say it's to treat people in right accord with their value, like to see them and honor them for who and what they fully are. And so we love God by clinging to him with our full heart, our full soul, our full mind, and our full strength, which is to say like all of us, there's nothing outside of that. And what Jesus quotes here, right, is this core teaching of the Jewish law, which is found in the book of Deuteronomy. That's the passage he's pulling from. And what's happening in Deuteronomy right there is there's this moment of covenant pledge between God and his people. A covenant pledge to belong wholly, for the people to belong wholly to their God because their God has pledged to belong wholly to them, to be holy with them. So in that part of Deuteronomy here, Yahweh has rescued the Jews from Egypt. He sustained them through 40 years of desert wanderings. And now he's talking to them like right before they go into the promised land, right before he delivers them. And what he asks for in that Deuteronomy passage then is for the people. Once you get what you've been chasing, once you get what's promised to you, hold fast to me because you have seen me over these 40 years for who I really am. You know who God is now. God's been with you. So love me, see me and honor me for who I have proven to be. And I will continue to do that for you. I will see you and honor you for who you really are. In the weeds, no one was here to listen to more stuff about Deuteronomy. So we're going we're gonna to jump to an illustration. All right. My brothers 
I'm sorry, my brothers. I do have two, but only one of them is true of. Uh, my brother and my father are both firefighters, which means that they have, I guess this doesn't always mean this, but in their case, it means that they have carried people out of burning buildings before. And you know what they say is the most important thing in any rescue of a person out of a burning building. The person you are trying to rescue has to trust you to carry them. They have to let you carry them. It turns out it's really, really hard to save a person who's fighting you and struggling against you and to get them out of a burning building. Because of this truth, I remember once when my kids were smaller, taking them um, to see my brother Chris at the fire station. And my brother Chris did this thing with him, with them, where he like brought them into this room next to his locker and he had them like, they weren't allowed to look away. They had to watch. Randy knows exactly what's going on because she's a firefighter too. Um, but like, so he made them sit and watch as he like slowly put on his whole firefighter gear, right? And then after it was all on, he like talked to them like through the respirator and all of that stuff. And he does this, the point right, is so that they can see that inside this thing is him, this human they know, which is a way of saying firefighters are people. And this matters because kids in burning buildings tend to hide from firefighters because they're afraid. And that fear can get them killed. They have to be willing to trust their rescuer with all of themselves, to cling to their rescuer, and then allow themselves to be carried to safety. Now, in Egypt, Yahweh showed the Israelites who he was. And as they prepared to enter the promised land, he was reminding them, if you're going to be my people, you have to cling to me. You can't hide from me. And I will continue to be your deliverer. The point here is that because we bear God's image, we should be able to recognize him, to trust that we are his, and then resist that temptation to hide or to struggle against him. That, I would contend, is what we owe God. We owe him recognition for who he really is. But to go back to Mark 12, by overlaying those verses from Deuteronomy with that conversation before about the imperial coin, I think Jesus also illuminates this second point in this motif. That's your word of the day motif. He helps us see our value as well, our value. The reason a coin means anything at all is because the value of that coin is backed up by the treasuries of the realm. I, I see some of you objecting who know your economics a little better. Hypothetic, theoretically, initially, that was the concept. I know that we've moved from that, but just work with me, people. All right, the idea is that the coin has value because its value is being backed up by the treasuries of the realm. It's a promise, in other words, that's made between a buyer and a seller to trust that the realm is going to last as long as this transaction has meaning or value. It's going to stay in existence long enough to support whatever we need to trade out here. I grew up in South Carolina. Everybody I knew in South Carolina has old Confederate dollar bills somewhere. 
They have them maybe in a drawer. They have them framed in their living room. Like everybody has old Confederate money. And the reason that they're keeping it in drawers and framing it in their living room is because you can't go out and spend it anywhere. And you can't spend it because the realm that issued that money is gone. So the money has become valueless. All of that to say that the realm that has issued us is eternal. So our value is secure. Our value is secure. God's image will always spend is a way you can think about that. Which is good for us. Yes, let's pat ourselves on the back again. But it's also challenging. Because what's the second half of that commandment that Jesus quotes, right? The second half is to love your neighbor as yourself. Why do we have to love our neighbors? We have to love our neighbors because they are also coins of the realm. Their value is also secure. God's image is on them too. And that makes them, makes everybody valuable forever. So in passage one, Jesus says to give back to God the stuff that bears God's image. And then in passage two, he points out that that's a trick because everybody bears God's image. And that both confirms our infinite value and challenges us to honor the value of others. So what happens in passage three? We get down to the bottom of Mark 12 and we read this. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. And many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins with only a few cents. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. The coin's back. Why does Jesus praise the widow? Well, what it says is that he praises her because she gives out of her poverty. She doesn't hold anything back for herself. To put that in our context this morning, what it would mean to hold some of Caesar's coins, I'm sorry, I guess I'm asking, actually not telling, what would it mean to hold some of Caesar's coins back from the offering? Well, I think it would mean, like, symbolically, keeping Caesar at least a little, like in a way, away from the stuff that's rightly his. Like I'm holding on to something that doesn't really belong to me according to the passage earlier. I'm, I'm clinging to it, right? And that's problematic because the value came from Caesar. Like that's where the value came from and I'm holding it for myself. If, if we wanted to keep punching down, we could say that this is a passage then about miserliness, about stinginess, that it's a challenge to those rich people um, to give more, even though they're giving a lot, but to give more, to give uh, at a deeper level. But again, like this morning, we're trying not to just punch down on the rich people and the elites. We're trying to see where we can be convicted here. And so I think to do that, what we need to do is keep the passage centered on the widow herself. Jesus celebrates her courage here, noting not just that she that she gave out of her poverty, but that she gave all that she had to live on. And it's worth pausing to like ask, like, what does that mean for a widow in first century Jerusalem? 
And I think what it means, if we look at the culture of, of Judaism and the responsibilities of the temple altogether, it means that she is trusting this very temple to sustain her. Because that's who's responsible for sustaining and caring for widows. I'm giving my Caesar money to the temple because the temple is going to take care of me. That's its job. Now, we've learned in the last few weeks that the temple doesn't really deserve her trust in the time of Jesus, at least according to him. But she puts herself in their hands anyway. And I would contend she does that because their hands are also meant to be the hands of God. Do you see like the symmetry then here? She trades the coins of this realm to put herself as God's image bearer in the hands of those who are charged with valuing God's image. I've forgotten the source of the quote, but it reminds me of the, like, I've given up what I cannot keep in order to gain what I cannot lose passage. It's missionary. Phillips? Who's? Elliot, Jim Elliot. There we go. If we are bearers of God's image, if our value comes from him, if our future is secure in him, and if we are called to recognize the image of God, not just in our religious friends, but the image of God in everybody, including Caesar, our enemy, then we have a task that I think is one and the same with who we are, and that is to love as God loves. And as we defined earlier, like what is to love if not to rightly understand and see and appreciate the value of somebody? Which is to say that I think like we trade in our lives, we trade with the coins of God's realm, honoring the eternal value of other people. And the thing is, right, that people in this moment, right now, people are putting their trust in the church. Maybe sometimes this church, but certainly the church, meaning all the churches around us. People are putting their trust in the church to be what we're supposed to be, right? Which is to, to be the hands of God in the world. People like that widow are trusting us to see them rightly and fully, to love them, trusting us to care for them in their need and their grief. But too often, but too often, we spend our time, like the leaders of the temple in, Matthew, in Mark 12, like quizzing God about nonsense, like those teachers do. Quizzing God about nonsense rather than giving our whole selves towards who and what we actually are. So what does that mean for us at Revolution? It means that, yes, of course I want you to be generous. I want you to all grow in generosity all the time. Give the American money that you've got to whatever causes resonate with you and do good in this world. Let America have what is America's. You don't need that. But even more important than what you do with your money is what you do with yourself. Trust that it is God's image that you carry. And when you discover how stunning and incredible a gift that is, how valuable that means you are, then take a look around you and realize that every single person is just as infinitely valuable as you are, just as unbelievably precious.
a distressing little test because I know that's the kind of stuff I say all the time. And even though y'all are all like, that's good and true, like it's not, it doesn't cut deep anymore. So let's do the cutting deep thing. A distressing little test. Would you be more inclined to stop what you're doing to pick up a $100 bill off the street than to deeply see the person sitting next to it? <laughs> what about the person at your mailbox? What about the person in prison who's easy not to see if we choose not to? Or maybe sometimes I, I look, if I'm looking in the mirror in my own life, I would say like the people who live in my home with me are often the hardest to see. How much more valuable are those people than a $100 bill? But I would slam on the brakes of my car and pull, I would run into the middle of an intersection for a $100 bill. Like, how much more valuable are these human beings? And like, what does my answer reveal about whose kingdom I'm more interested in living in? Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is God's. I don't have a really good closing. Instead, I just want to say this. I want this to break our hearts a little bit this morning. May the, the deepness of this challenge startle us into a new way of seeing both our own wild and extravagant value this week and also the opportunities that we all have day in and day out to live richly in our relationships with other people, to see people generously. And can you imagine, the challenge I'd close with is just this, can, like, can we imagine for a moment what it would be like in a relatively little town like Annapolis if 50 people actually took this challenge to heart? This isn't a huge city. Like, and this isn't a big church, but the people of the church could make a difference here. A profound difference. <clears throat> So are we willing to feel that challenge to see our own wealth or our own generosity, the generosity to which God has shown us, our own value, and then to live generously as we also appreciate the value of others?